Attention, please. The show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.
Hello there, everyone. Welcome to the TTOR show. I'm your main host, TTOR, and this, of course, is none other than the one, the only, the infamous, the boogeyman of the internet, Brett Keen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the fun times. One thing I definitely need to look at here. I forget how. Oh, that's a cool T-shirt you got on. Where'd you get that from? Uh, there's this guy on the internet. His name is like Brett something rather, and he had this shirt, and I was just like, you know, I mean, it looks pretty cool. I mean, if you can tilt it even more, you know, evolution is magic. You got the wizard monkey. I mean, it was pretty cool. I mean, that Brett guy, ooh, he really knows how to make shirts. Sounds like a good guy to me. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Couldn't possibly be someone else we're talking about now. Well, something I'm not picking up. So while you're looking at that, uh, I hope everybody out there has been doing all right. I hope the weather's not uh, been hateful to you. Yeah. What you got for us, TTOR? Something on the recipe? Yes. Today's topic, if you guys watching couldn't guess from... You know, the general thumbnail and title of the video is today we're going to talk about the relationship between religion and science. Because you see, we live in a day and age where the atheists, the evolutionists, the religion skeptics, they have seemingly convinced the world that there is no positive relationship between religion and science. They so wildly contradict each other that in order to believe in religion you have to reject science and in order to accept science you have to reject religion but as we're going to show on today's stream that's not actually the case science and religion not only don't contradict each other but they're actually complementarians to each other you'll see especially when we get into the bible how the bible talked about a lot of things that science later on, like way later on, confirmed to be true. But before we get into that, I would like to talk briefly about, oh, this horrible ice storm that we went through in my area this past week. Basically on Friday last week, it started, well, it was supposed to snow, and then it started snowing. And then it started raining, and of course the temperature's down in the 20s, and so it was like, great, we're going to get snow and ice. And in the past, that usually meant, you know, layer of ice at the bottom, and then snow packs up on top, and that way you can basically walk across the ice because you have the traction of the snow. Not this time, no. Actually, the snow and the ice basically fused together as they hit the ground because it was so cold out and because they were doing rain and snow at the same time. So it just became one big solid two-inch layer of white ice that covered everything. And it was it took about a couple days to get up to where it was at its worst. So like the snow comes on Friday, Saturday it's getting bad-ish. And then Sunday it's pretty bad, but we could still drive to church in my dad's truck because my church decided to do a lunchtime service where we recorded it offline and then we had a live service to whoever could make it. But then after Sunday, and that horrible drive home, oh, it just got worse. Basically, the ice hit its peak, and power lines were falling down because ice was building up around them and weighing them down until eventually they would snap, 
and hit the street. I even saw a live video of one area that was like four or five blocks away from my church where the power lines had hit the ground. And even though it was like, you know, 20 degrees or lower outside and it was interacting with ice, the uh, power lines started a fire on solid ice. <laughs> and Ooh. then uh, let's see what else. Oh yeah. Then tree branches were experiencing the same thing. We're not talking like little branches. We're talking like, big hurricane branches that were just snapping off because of all the ice surrounding it. And at our church in particular, we lost power for like a couple of days, but like early on we had a giant tree branch fall off a tree and literally just break off our internet cable line that we have from Comcast. So we haven't had internet at the church for like literally a week. So that's why we couldn't stream live on Sunday last weekend. And so, yeah, we were basically just trapped inside. I mean, this ice was so bad. But I think on Tuesday, I tried to bravely go check the mailbox to see if there was any mail. And I was holding on to this really big bush that was right next to our walkway covered in ice. I took one step, slid on my butt, landed on my shoulder. And yeah, that stung for a little bit. And then using all of my instinctual thinking, I crawled back onto the porch and went back inside and didn't go out again until three o'clock this afternoon when most of the ice had melted and I wanted to see if it was walkable. Ooh boy. It was such a bad ice storm. I mean, I've been through snow before when I lived in the Portland area of Oregon, I went through a snowstorm years ago, but I've never been through an ice storm as bad as this one. I mean, I can't recall. It was awful. Something I hope doesn't happen again anytime soon. And by that, I mean for years. What about you, Brett? Did you guys have snow and ice in Missouri? Yeah, we had uh, some snow and ice. It got me so bothered. I got on Twitter and was asking people, where is that dreaded global warming you all been promising me about? Right. Of course, you know, the global cooling people from like 30 years ago were like, see, we told you. We told you. <laughs> Well, that was originally how it started. They told us we were going to all freeze to death, and that was the big deal. But now we're all going to burn to death. It depends on, uh, I guess, what decade it is with these folks. Right, and then this kind of stuff happens, so they decided to just go with the generic climate change label. So that way, they can't be wrong no matter what happens because it just describes generic change. It doesn't prescribe to cooling or warming. So that way, they're never wrong because they went generic. Oh, you no. hear their you hear their new deal. You're gonna love this. They call it ecocide. Have you heard of this before? Uh, that term in particular, no. Tell us about ecocide. Well, as you know, cows farting and all this kind of stuff and killing meat or animals was bad to all these folks. Well, now it's bad to farm. It's bad to plant things because these things, plants are alive too. Apparently, the the Greenpeace people just figured out that uh, plants are considered living things. Too. <laughs> so now we're down to, um, I think they might allow us to eat bugs and maybe regurgitated feces. That's uh, what they want to go with. Interesting. Yeah, you'll eat the bugs, you'll live in pods, you'll own nothing, and you'll be happy. Fantastic. It's a brave new world after all. I'm just putting the link to our room on the Twitter feed for the Twitter stream. And I see Andreas Segovia in the Rumble chat saying, Happy New Year, Justin. Wishing you and Brett a good evening and a great stream. Well, I thank you, Andreas. There's six people currently watching on Rumble. And 
If you're watching this on Rumble, I just put the link to our room in the chat. So if you feel brave enough and you got a microphone and either a webcam or a, an avatar of some kind, then you can join the show too. We just might put the danger stranger danger <laughs> stranger danger screen on while we talk to you, but you know, you're welcome to join the show if you have something to contribute. But now that you know about the horrible weather that we've been dealing with nationwide, pretty much from what I've been hearing in one form or another, uh, let's get into the subject of the relationship between religion and science. And in particular, I want to give you five examples of science that show that the Bible is correct or at the very least, that the evolutionary billions of years worldview that we're taught in basically schools and media and all forms and institutions is false. So the first thing I want to look at is the fossil record. Because the fossil record, if it looks a certain way, will mean that a certain worldview is true. So in order to demonstrate to you what that means and to show you that I'm not making up the guy I'm going to quote, I'd like to put to you this. Got a quotation from Douglas Futuyima, an evolutionist who wrote a book called Science on Trial, The Case for Evolution, back in 1983. And on page 197, Douglas Futuyima wrote, Creation and evolution between them exhaust the possible explanations for the origin of living things. Organisms either appeared on the earth fully developed or they did not. If they did not, they must have developed from pre-existing species by some process of modification. If they did appear in a fully developed state, they must have been created by some omnipotent intelligence. Now, a couple of things to point out here. First of all, he points out that creation, meaning young earth creationism, because when these guys back in the 80s and the 90s and even in our current time talk about creationism, they almost always refer to young earth creationism. They almost never refer to old earth creationism. When they say things like, well, creation and evolution exhaust the possible explanations for the origin of living things. But notice what he did. He made a prediction. If evolution is true, then we will see in the fossil record that existing species developed from pre-existing species by some process of modification, which is what evolution is you know, simple to more complex and basically, you know, good to you via the zoo, that kind of thinking, that kind of saying. It's basically what he's talking about. Basically, we should see transitional forms for every step of the evolutionary process if evolution is true. That's what we should see in the fossil record. But he made a second prediction. He predicted that if creationism is true, then when we look in the fossil record, we should see that the Vast majority, if not all, of the fossils and fossil groups, when they enter the record, they have to appear in a fully developed state the first time that they enter the record. Now, that is quite a prediction that Douglas Futuyima made back in the 80s. But, that's what was missing. But we don't have to wait very long to see that his prediction actually came true. Which prediction? The second one, Richard Dawkins, in his book, The Blind Watchmaker, which came out just three years later in 1986, wrote the following on page 229. 
and we find many of them already in an advanced state of evolution the very first time they appeared. It is as though they were just planted there without any evolutionary history. Needless to say, this appearance of sudden planting has delighted creationists. So Richard Dawkins here is saying, yeah, when we look at the fossil record, we see the via the Cambrian explosion, quote unquote, that the vast majority of animals and animal groups, when they enter the fossil record the first time, they enter the record fully developed, fully intact, fully as they are today. They enter the record fully developed without any evidence whatsoever of any kind of evolutionary past or transitional forms, which is literally what his colleague Douglas Fujiyama predicted three years earlier would be the case if young earth creationism or really any form of creationism is true. So the fossil record looks exactly how it should if the Bible is correct about origins. And if you know the creation account, you know that on day six of creation, Actually, no, I think it's day five of creation. God made all the animals. And then day six, he made man. No, no, day five is when he made the birds and the sea animals. Day six is when he made the land animals and then humans. So if he made all the land animals on day six, then what we should see in the fossil record is that the earliest fossils will be fully developed and fully formed without any evidence of any kind of evolutionary history, which according to these evolutionists, Douglas Fujiyama, and Richard Dawkins, the atheist, that's exactly what we see when we look at the fossil record. So that is one example, scientifically speaking, that proves that there is no negative relationship between science and religion. In fact, the fossil record looks exactly how it should if the Bible is true in its account on origins. But that's not the only example, of course. I got more. So another good example to look at is actually what the Bible says regarding the flood of Noah, and in particular, the floodwaters that uh, were present on the earth during the flood of Noah and where they went. So I'm just going to go ahead and put on the application here. And so I actually talked a bit about this in my recent video, was the flood of Noah a global, global flood? But... In particular, Genesis 8, 1 through 5 says this. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the earth heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down, and on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month, and on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. So according to this passage, after the flood of Noah had run its course and the rain had stopped coming, God caused the waters of the flood to recede from the earth. So naturally, you would think, well, okay, if there was all this water on the earth and God caused it to recede from the earth, then naturally, when we look under the crust of the earth, we should be able to find a crap ton of water, right? Right? And of course, ladies and gentlemen, we do. I have here on screen, if it will let me, there we go, Nature World News, an article from 2014 titled, Vast underwater ocean 
trapped beneath Earth's crust. Now, I came across this article when it first came out, and I have never forgotten it since. And since it's not a terribly long article, I'll go ahead and read the entire thing. It says, Scientists have discovered evidence of a vast water reservoir trapped hundreds of miles beneath the surface capable of filling Earth's oceans three times over. Located 400 miles beneath Earth's crust, this body of water is locked up in a blue mineral called ringwoodite that lies in the transition zone of hot rock between Earth's surface and core. Interestingly, this water is not in a form familiar to us. It's neither liquid, ice, nor vapor. Geophysicist Steve Jacobson from Northwestern University suggests it means that water on Earth may get pushed to the surface from below, contradicting previous beliefs that water was delivered via icy comets. Also, if you read the whole flood account in the book of Genesis, it says that it didn't just rain from the sky. It says that water came up from the earth to flood the earth. So the idea that the earth pushes water to the surface isn't really that far-fetched if you believe the Bible. Geological processes on the earth's surface, such as earthquakes or erupting volcanoes, are an expression of what is going on inside the earth out of our sight, Jacobson said in a press release. I think we are finally seeing evidence for a whole earth water cycle, which may help explain the vast amount of liquid water on the surface of our habitable planet. Scientists have been looking for this missing deep water for decades. Ringwoodite here is key. Its crystal-like structure makes it act like a sponge and draw in hydrogen and trap water. Jacobson and his colleagues based their findings on a study of the transition zone, an underground region extending across most of the interior of the United States. Along with Jacobson's lab experiments on rocks simulating the high pressures found deep underground, the study compiled data from the U.S. Array, a network of seismometers across the United States used to measure earthquake vibrations. It produced evidence that melting occurs 400 miles beneath the Earth's surface, the, plus the movement of rock on the transition zone, plus the movement of rock in the transition zone, leads to a process where water can become fused and trapped within the rock. Scientists were astounded because most melting in the mantle was previously thought to occur at a much shallower distance, about 50 miles below the Earth's surface. And according to The Guardian, Jacobson said that this trapped hidden water may explain why Earth's oceans have stayed the same size for billions of years. If the stored water wasn't there, it would be on the surface of the Earth and the mountaintops would be the only land poking out, he said. So we learn from this article that 400 miles underneath the Earth's crust, there is enough water on this Earth not only to fill the Earth's oceans three times over, but if this water was up here on the surface instead of 400 miles down below the Earth's crust, the world would be flooded to the point where only the tops of mountains would be sticking out of the water and all other land would be underwater. And the reason why this water doesn't come up to the surface of the Earth is because this ringwoodite stuff underneath the Earth's crust, 400 miles down below, is keeping that water down there. So it seems to me, Brett, that we seem to have found where all that flood water from the flood of Noah receded to. Seems like God put it in its own little pocket 400 miles below the Earth's crust. I mean, is there any other way to interpret that? No, the Earth is actually called a water planet because 75 to 85% of the Earth is water on the surface alone. And if there's three levels of uh, almost three oceans worth of water underneath us, and it wouldn't be difficult whatsoever 
it would literally only take one more ocean worth of water to be able to cover that little bit of land. I mean, it's literally like dropping an ice cube and a cup of tea that's already filled to the rim. It's <laughs> You don't even have to be a scientist to figure that out. It's It's simple math. Yep, I agree with you completely on that. Of course, we live in a day where simple math is not so simple to most people. If you don't but, mind me pointing out just real quick, we've heard atheists argue that it's not possible for the world to be flooded, yet they'll claim that in the past it would, uh, according to them, there was an ice age that covered the entire earth. Now, as far as I remember, ice and snow is made out of what? So, water. <laughs> yeah. And then, uh, then Bill Nye, if you remember, he was arguing mm-hmm. with Ken Ham about the flood. And he said that it's not possible, but then he went on the news two weeks later on Fox News. I even got the clip where he tells people that if they don't uh, keep an eye on climate issues, our ice caps could melt. And then what would happen because of that? Oh, the horror. Sorry for the little bit of moving around I did there. But you're absolutely right. I do remember when he did that. It was just remarkable. I mean, literally talking out both sides of his mouth in a two-week span, he must have given Dr. Fauci lessons back then. <laughs> That's right. They're, the climate change people are claiming that, and they're not even talking about the water under the uh, earth that uh, Mr. TTR is talking about. They're talking about just the caps alone would overflow our entire planet. We're literally going to be going swimming for the rest of our life. It's going to be water world with Kevin Costner. Yay! I just love a new water world, said no one ever. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out people prefer dry land to live on. Who knew? So another good example of the relationship between the religion and science being a good one is this particular passage in Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27, which says the following. In the beginning, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be discarded, but you remain the same and your years will never end. So according to this passage, the heavens and the earth are going to perish because they're wearing out like a garment. Hmm, I wonder if science has confirmed that the universe and the earth are wearing out. Oh, that's right. It has already. It's called the law of entropy, which you guys know as the second law of thermodynamics. The law of entropy is just another name for it. The second law of thermodynamics, according to the second paragraph here, establishes the concept of entropy as a physical property of a thermodynamic system. It predicts whether processes are forbidden despite obeying the requirement of conservation of energy as expressed in the first law of thermodynamics, and provides necessary criteria for spontaneous processes. For example, the first law allows the process of a cup falling off a table and breaking on the floor, as well as allowing the reverse process of the cup fragments coming back together and jumping back onto the table, while the second law allows the former and denies the latter. The second law may be formulated by the observation that the entropy of isolated systems left to spontaneous evolution cannot decrease as they always tend toward a state of thermodynamic equilibrium where the entropy is highest at the given interval energy. As increase in the combined entropy of system and surroundings accounts for the irreversibility of natural processes, 
often referred to in the concept of the arrow of time. In other words, the basic idea behind the law of entropy is that over time, the universe, the earth, and everything in those two things, and in the sea, when left to their own devices with no intelligent intervention whatsoever, will increase in entropy. Well, that sounds great, but what is entropy? Something the evolutionists and this Wikipedia article refuse to do. Well, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary tells us what entropy means in relation to thermodynamics. Definition one, a measure of the unavailable energy in a closed thermodynamic system that is also usually considered to be a measure of the system's disorder. That is a property of the system state and that varies directly with any reversible change in heat in the system and irreversibly with the temperature of the suds of the system. Broadly, the degree of disorder or uncertainty in a system. Definition 2a, the degradation of the matter and energy in the universe to an ultimate state of inert uniformity. Definition 2b, a process of degradation or running down or a trend to disorder. So in other words, entropy means that things are degrading. They're progressing towards, trending towards disorder, which is the opposite of evolution, which means that according to the second law of thermodynamics, as the universe, the earth, the sea, and everything in those three things continues to exist over time without any intelligent intervention whatsoever, those things will wear down, break down, fall into disorder, which is literally confirming Psalm 102, 25 through 27. Go ahead, Brett. Well, I've heard atheists, they've attempted to argue uh, because there's a couple lines even on Wikipedia and then the definition of closed-in systems, and they don't understand what it means by the closed-in systems. We are affected. Humans, animals, everything that is alive is affected. We go into disorder, and as TTR pointed out, we don't upgrade. We downgrade. We're basically going into disorder, and and our bodies are literally being pulled apart as the universe goes through this expansion period. If you actually believe the universe is doing that, as scientists claim, it is the reason why things rust. It's the reason why your favorite pet's going to die. It's the reason why you will age. All the if you ever wondered why is it that you get older? Why is it that your body seems to start pulling towards the ground and all that? Well, that's because of that damn wonderful entropy. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, I mean, if you've got to, if you were to think of everything as information, like what you're pointing out, if you've got a computer that is sitting there, no matter what kind of variables hit it, it's actually going to wear it down, not upgrade it. You're not going to expect to see your little Nintendo Game Boy turn into a, a Dell computer with upgraded SDD hard drives, folks. That just doesn't happen. Yeah, that is absolutely true. And I see you, all 10 of you watching currently on the Rumble stream. Link to the room is in the chat box. So if you want to join the show and you got a working mic, feel free to join. So up next on the docket, we have another example of the Bible predicting something, well, describing something that was later verified by science. And that, of course, is the stretching or the expansion of the universe itself which I will share those verses right now. So in Isaiah 40, 22, it says, 
He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. Isaiah 42, 5. This is what the Lord... I can't even read today, guys. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. So in this verse, we see that God stretches out the heavens, and he's the creator of them. Isaiah 44, 24, this is what the Lord says, your redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself. So we have these three passages in Isaiah, and there's two other passages in Isaiah and other parts of the Bible that say that God stretches out the heavens. But you can see from these three passages that God claims to be stretching out the heavens. Now, what that means is that when we look at the universe, what we should see, if the Bible is telling the truth about God stretching out the heavens, we should see the heavens stretching. Now, we know that stretch is a synonym for expand, and all the instances we quoted here in the Bible where the word heavens is used, it definitely is describing the universe because it can't be describing anything else at this point. So the Bible clearly talks about here how God causes the universe to expand. How do we know that the universe is actually expanding? Well, there's this little thing called redshift that they discovered with Edwin Hubble's telescope in the 20s. But I'm going to go ahead and read the first paragraph here. In physics, a redshift is an increase in the wavelength and corresponding decrease in the frequency and photon energy of electromagnetic radiation, such as light. The opposite change, a decrease in wavelength and increase in frequency and energy, is known as a blue shift or negative redshift. The terms derive from the colors red and blue, which form the extremes of the visible light spectrum. The main causes of electromagnetic redshift in astronomy and cosmology are the relative motions of radiation sources, which give rise to the relativistic Doppler effect and gravitational potentials, which gravitationally redshift escaping radiation. All sufficiently distant light sources show cosmological redshift corresponding to recession speeds proportional to their distances from Earth, a fact known as Hubble's law that implies the universe is expanding. So we know from all this redshift we see everywhere we look that the universe is expanding, and yet long before Hubble discovered this through his telescope, the Bible in multiple instances said that the universe was expanding because God is causing it to expand. So it seems to me at this point that the relationship between science and religion is very complementarian and not contrarian. Well, it's not just that, TTOR, besides the expansion, the Bible does very clearly point out that the universe had a beginning. And a lot of people out there may not know this, but it was a Christ-believing priest named Georges Lemaitre who actually came up with the Big Bang. He took his mathematic and his equations and his information, and he also admits that he got his ideas and thoughts from the Bible directly, took it to Einstein, and that's the reason why we have the popular theory of the Big Bang model today, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. And even though I'm someone who does not believe Big Bang theory at all because of the problems it has relative to the Bible, 
it is a historical fact that atheists and evolutionists didn't come up with it. It's something a theist, a Catholic, I think, came up with it. That's correct. Yeah. And a, and a Christian doesn't have to necessarily even believe it happened in the way that they're saying in all this. I mean, the idea was simply that there was a beginning to the universe and it expanded and develops like a tent, just as the Bible pointed out, as you read. That's pretty much what he put forth. And then they came up with all the complicated, neat words for it. Not the atheist, scientists. But also as a pro tip, if you're watching this, you can be a young earth creationist and believe in an expanding universe being indicated by redshift because that's all the redshift does. It indicates that the universe is expanding. Big Bang Theory adds a whole bunch of stuff to that and they just merely appeal to the redshift as evidence of Big Bang cosmology when in fact you can believe in an expanding universe just by accepting the Bible and you don't even have to embrace Big Bang cosmology to accept redshift. But the last thing I wanted to get into before I give Brett the floor to talk about a whole lot of other things regarding science and religion and the complementarian relationship they have is I want to talk to you about the decay rate of Earth's magnetic field. Now, this particular issue is something that is interesting because we have an evolution narrative about it that if true, we shouldn't be around to talk about it today. And yet we are, and therefore evolution, billions of years, can't be true. Creationism has to be true because it allows us to still be alive today to talk about stuff. But let's go into the actual articles that support what I'm saying because I don't want you guys to think that I'm just some young earth creationist making stuff up out of the clear blue sky. So I have here a Scientific American article from 1998 called... Is it true that the strength of the Earth's magnetic field is decreasing? What's the effect? Short answer is yes, but there's one paragraph in particular I want to read, which is this one. At most places, there has been a general decrease in the strength over the past century, typically 10% or so. No one can say with any certainty whether this represents a fluctuation or whether it is a decrease which will eventually lead to a reversal. Past reversals have taken place over a short period of time, geologically speaking, 10,000 years or so. In order for a reversal to take place, there must be a brief time during which the field is non-existent. So what this paragraph is saying is that in a universe in Earth that is billions of years old, there's been times where the magnetic field has been decreasing, and then a reversal occurs, and it starts increasing in strength, and then another reversal occurs and it goes back to decreasing. But that during the period of time which these reversals take place and therefore the magnetic field doesn't exist during these times lasts about 10,000 years or so. Now, why is that a problem? Well, I got another article for you titled Six Horrible Consequences of Earth Losing Its Magnetic Field by Futurism. And we scroll down to point number four. It says, cosmic rays could reach Earth's surface. Our magnetic field doesn't just give us beautiful auroras, it keeps us alive. Cosmic rays in the solar wind are harmful to life on Earth, and without the protection of our magnetosphere, our planet would be constantly bombarded by a stream of deadly particles. 
The effects of cosmic rays on the body can be pretty terrifying. While on lunar missions, for example, astronauts often reported seeing flashes of light when they closed their eyes. The direct result of cosmic rays passing through their retinas. A few even developed cataracts years later. Radiation and cosmic rays are a real concern for NASA, especially when it comes to long-term spaceflight. Astronauts on a mission to Mars could undergo up to 1,000 times the exposure to radiation and cosmic rays that they would get on Earth. If Earth's magnetic field disappeared, the entire human race, and all of life in fact, would be in serious danger. Cosmic rays would bombard our bodies and could even damage our DNA, increasing worldwide risk of cancer and other illnesses. The flashes of light visible when we close our eyes would be the least of our problems. So according to this secular article talking about the consequences of us having no magnetic field for any period of time, says that if we were to have a period of time of 10,000 years or so where we didn't have a magnetic field around the Earth, our planet would be bombarded by cosmic rays. All of life would be hit with various illnesses and cancers of all kinds. And when you know, well, let me put it this way. When you think about cancers as we know them today and how fast acting they can be, you're talking about a period of time 10,000 or so years ago where there was no magnetic field around the earth and all of life on earth, including our pre-human ancestors, essentially, were getting hit by all these cancers and other illnesses and all these cosmic rays. Well, it stands to reason that if this happened for 10,000 years, all life on earth would have been eradicated. We would not be around today to talk about this if what we're reading in these two articles by Scientific American and futurism is true. Our pre-human ancestors 10,000 years ago would have been, or so ago, would have been completely destroyed by cancer and cosmic rays from space, and we wouldn't be here to talk about it. But we are here today, alive and well, to talk about it. So the fact that we're alive and well to talk about it today indicates not only that evolution and billions of years is false, but that creationism is true. It has to be, because that's the one where this doesn't become a problem. You see, in the young Earth creationist worldview, the Earth and universe are only 6,000 years old. So even if the magnetic field has always been decreasing since the beginning of creation, we haven't been around long enough for that to become a problem. So really, the fact that we're alive today to talk about it is strong scientific evidence that young Earth creationism is true. Any thoughts on the Earth's magnetic field, Brett? Well, it's uh, it is a part of the whole entropy effect that we were talking about earlier. Everything is going to die down. Everything's going to wind down. There's several different theories. I mean, even the Bible says there is a beginning, but there is also an ending. Some people would like to believe the universe is going on forever. Scientists say that it's either going to have a heat death, a cold death, or a crunch, or it may even have uh, what they call the rubber band effect. You know what that is? Uh, describe it for our audience, please. It's basically whenever the universe decides that it wants to rewind itself and go back into what is called the singularity. This is why you hear some people coming up with these Star Trek quotes like, well, maybe the universe will regenerate itself and then the energy will generate uh, another universe over and over and over. Basically a recycling effect. Makes sense? You probably heard that. 
have that. I have heard something like that. And the, to put it lightly, that is some very wishful thinking. Very wishful. Oh, it is. It is. And it, it doesn't even matter if it were the case, even if we didn't even throw theology into the mix. If the universe were to turn backwards and go back into this, it would basically be like an implosion in on itself. Trust me, whoever is alive during the first process, this isn't going to be a happy camper. <laughs> to put it lightly, yeah, they're not going to be happy at all. Well, they're, they're you know, they're not even going to be sad because they're just going to be dead. <laughs> There you I go. Mean, I know it's isn't. It, I know some people like take this clip out of context. Be like, see that TTOR is laughing at the thought of people being dead. What a horrible dirtbag he is. Context, people. Context. Some of this stuff is so laughable that you gotta laugh just to cope with it because it's so horrible and obviously false. And instead of going insane over it, you just laugh it off. But I've gone through everything I've wanted to go through so far about all the things that we see in science and the Bible that prove that science and religion do not contradict each other. They complement each other. Now I give the floor to Brett to lead the way on all the things he brings to the table about the relationship between science and religion. And I'm excited for this part, so the floor is yours, Brett. And folks, I'm obviously going to uh, stop from time to time, take a breath, because I want to hear what TTOR thinks about all this. Uh, TTOR and I were talking about some of the different uh, science aspects that are in the Bible. Uh, whenever I was a former non-believer, I went out of my way to try to find and see if there was anything that theology and science didn't agree with. And I thought the best bet was to go after Genesis and the old, one of the oldest books in the Bible, which was the book of Job. And I ended up finding some things that really knocked me on my behind. See, I'm trying to get nicer with my words there. <laughs> Okay, so Job claimed there was a story that got to me where it, it spoke of what was happening in the ocean. It said that it's possible for clean water to actually exist within the saltiness of the ocean. And right off the bat, I was saying, really, the Bible's going to say that? And so I looked into science, and apparently they actually made up a term for it. It's called the halo effect. Like the video game, the halo mm -hmm. effect that clean rivers of water can actually run through the ocean. I'm like, well, the Bible's right about that. But then I got to thinking, when did Job get scuba gear and could go 20,000 leagues under the sea to figure that out? That right. can't be possible. <laughs> so <laughs> let's get into some more stuff, folks. You can look that up. Uh, I kid you not. It's called the halo effect. Job 26.7. The Bible tells us about gravity. It says he spreads out the northern skies over empty space. He suspends the earth over nothing. There's absolutely no way primitive men back then, because they didn't have an Elon Musk who was firing off rockets, there's no way that they could have known that we basically had a planet that was lev uh, levitating out in the emptiness and void of space. But somehow the Bible knew this. Then if you look at Job 26.8, it tells us that we're actually able to predict the weather and its water cycles. It says it wraps up the waters and the clouds, yet the clouds do not burst under their weight, and it goes into even more descriptive terms. So it actually, before we even had weathermen and scientists that knew anything about the weather, voila, there you go. The Earth's core, Job 28.5, it speaks of the different levels and layers of the planet. 
Now, there was absolutely no way, even nowadays, modern man is not able to dig down into the earth that far to be able to see what's happening. They can only put theories. But the Bible already knew that the earth had a core and that there was some hot stuff going on in there and yada, yada, yada. Mm -hmm. So there you go. My next section that I would probably get into is some of the revolutionary things that Christians have done with science. How many times, CTOR, have you heard atheists say, Christians don't know nothing about science and they're a detriment and they cause problems and all this, right? How many times right. have you heard it? A lot of times. And not only that, they actually make a concerted effort to blackball Christians and creationists from having any position in academia, at least in a science department. And I have books in my bedroom across the house documenting all the Christians and creationists that got screwed out of college degrees and jobs because they wouldn't hold to evolution in billions of years and believed in some form of creationism. Right. So a lot of non-believers out there and skeptics might be surprised to find out that the person who actually came up with the scientific method, his name was Francis Bacon. He was a philosopher. He also dealt in law and all kinds of different fields of ideas. And he actually came up with the scientific method and he was a Christian. Christians actually came up with the scientific method. But I don't just want to blow your mind with the idea that they've been revolutionary with science. Christians have also created masterpieces of art. They also created many different forms and genres of music and literally the civilizations that many of us exist in today. So Christianity has been a great benefit. Try looking back in history and see what atheists have ever done, and you simply will not find it. It, there's there's just nothing revolutionary that they've done. Let me let me show you somebody. A lot of you out there, you're using com computers right now to watch us and listen to us and all that. Well, guess what? A Christian by the name of Charles Babbage actually conceived the first automatic digital computer, ladies and gentlemen. That was done in the 1830s that that was done. The first camera that was ever created was created by a Christian. A lot of these different fields of science were created by Christians. A lot of the medical equipment, even the symbols that you see in hospitals nowadays are religious and symbolic in nature of Christianity. So I don't know where they get this idea. And I'll even go so far as to say, and even Charles Darwin himself said in the book, Descent of Man, he's quoted for saying that evolution cannot work unless there is a higher power that is working the mechanism and process. So right. there's that. <clears throat> I could go on, but I want to give you an opportunity to be able to respond. And if you've got anything to say out there, because I could literally go on all day with the revolutionary great things Christians right. have done. Right. And the one thing I would add to that, because you talked about how Christians have contributed to the world in various ways, including, you know, technologies and building hospitals and other important things like that. Well, I recently did a video that you can see here on screen called Stu Peters falsely claims Israel has never done anything good for humanity. And when you watch that video, I talk about a variety of different things and organizations that Jews in Israel have made that have benefited all of humanity, which includes the creation of flash drives. So it's actually kind of funny when atheists and evolutionists like to claim that Christians and creationists, and to a lesser extent Jews, because they believe in God, are somehow anti-science. 
even though it was Christians who made the computers that ultimately became the computers the atheists used to slam us and all the flash drives that they use in order to transport media to and from devices was made by Jews. <laughs> so yeah, the very people and worldviews that they like to slam on are the ones that made all this stuff, including originally the original versions of all this wonderful technology that we use today. That is right. Would you be able to put my thing up there in a big way? This is actually an atheist philosopher of science. He's not obviously arrogant like our social media amateur uh, atheist. He actually uh, credits. This is a modern-day atheist philosopher of science who says modern science owes its being to Christianity. So I know it's shocking, right? Is it shocking that he's saying that, or is it shocking that he's an atheist? Which one shocks you more? <laughs> uh, uh, the fact that he's an atheist who's honest enough to look at history and make an honest assessment, that's a rare part. Well, nowadays in our modern times, we've got a few, we've got a handful of aggressive scientists like Richard Dawkins and all that. But can I remind people that Richard Dawkins and some of these guys like Neil deGrasse Tyson, they haven't, and Bill Nye, they never have invented anything. They never did anything. Richard Dawkins actually, they call him the pit bull of Darwin because he works off the back of a dead theist. He hasn't ever done anything himself. He's just basically mimicking and parroting what it is that he heard from Darwin's work, but without God involved. And if I remember right, I think Bill Nye is not actually a scientist. I think he's actually like an engineer. Like the kind that works on planes and stuff. Um, an engineer is a, a credible thing for sure. Right, and all that. it is, but it's not... Uh, it's not a biologist or any of the other fields that are prevalent for talking about evolution over billions of years by natural selection. Yeah, none of these guys, none of these atheist speakers on television who run over religion and Christianity, have they ever actually created anything that you use in your home or with your automobile or your vehicles, anything. But all your computers, all your electronics... Most of the medications and drugs that you use that you get from the hospital, these are all things, including the hospitals, the colleges, the legacy universities, were all founded by Christians, ladies and gentlemen. So don't let atheists on, on like YouTube who haven't even made it through high school tell you that scientists uh, didn't get contributed from religion. You got you to gotta think about this before I get into any more like quotes or scientists. I want to point this out. Um, if a person doesn't believe that there's anything going on in the universe, that there's nothing to be found, that there's no other life, then why would they be interested in putting their life on the line to go look? It would take somebody who believes that there's more out there that would want to explore. Because Christians see everything in the universe as a mystery or a gift from God, which actually can be found in James uh, 17, I believe, they're going to be more inclined to be ambitious enough to go out there because they believe that God put things for us to find in truth. But what would an atheist do? Atheist just looks at it as a big black void with a bunch of dangerous stuff going out there. Why would they want to go out there any more than they would uh, jump out of a foxhole to fight for their fellow man? <laughs> right. Right. I mean, after all, we got so many people on the earth, so if a whole bunch of them die in warfare, it's good for the planet. 
So let's uh, look at some stuff. We were talking about the very title of your video, which I think was beautifully put. Uh, the relationship between science and the concept of religion. Let's see what Lord William Kelvin said, who was noted as being a theoretical worker on thermodynamics. He said, I believe the more thoroughly science is studied, the further does it take us from anything comparable to atheism. If you study science deep enough and long enough, it will force you to believe in God. Then we've got uh, Max Planck, who was the founder of quantum physics. He said, both religion and science require a belief in God. For believers, God is in the beginning, and for physicists, he is the end of all considerations. To the former, he is the foundation. To the latter, the crown and edifice of every generalized worldview. There can never be any real opposition between religion and science, for one is the complement of the other. Every serious and reflective person realizes, I think, that the religious element in his nature must be recognized and cultivated if all the powers of the human soul are to act together in perfect balance and harmony. And indeed, it was not by accident that the greatest thinkers of all ages were deeply religious souls. Hmm. That's very interesting. It's almost like there's a connection between my deep thinking and my faith. Huh. Well, there you go. Like I said, I could go on all day. Almost 99% of scientists throughout history have been religious. They believed in some concept of God. And their belief and their faith in God helped them uh, do a lot of the inventions they did. Think about this. When you're inventing something, you don't know for sure. You you don't have like a some kind of future sense of something's going to work. You have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that if you put this component with this component and put this together, it's going to happen. And that's really what faith is, isn't it? Believing that at the end of the day, you're going to get results. So every good scientist out there, every reflective one, has had to use a form of faith in order to be able to create the things they do. Right, and evolutionists and atheists are the perfect example of the exercising of faith in order to function within their worldview. Because as we sit here, even on this stream, presenting all this scientific evidence that proves that the Bible is true and that ultimately proves that evolution in billions of years is not true. The atheist who is presented with this information but doesn't want to convert to this worldview that we hold, they will say to themselves, well, yeah, that seems to be the case, but in the future, we will discover things that will prove that the evolution narrative is true. And then we will have our laugh and have our day and get to make fun of Christians and creationists for being so stupid. But most atheists and evolutionists, when confronted with the fact that their worldview doesn't have evidence supporting it, they talk about how, well, one day science will prove this. Well, that's basically a faith. I mean, you have faith. You believe that one day the worldview, the institution of... Maybe I should put this another way, because science uh, is not a worldview in this case. They have faith that one day the institution of science will produce physical evidence supporting their worldview that currently doesn't exist. I mean, that would be no different than saying, as a Christian, well, we have no evidence that the Jesus of the Bible was a real historical person. 
But I, I believe that one day we will find evidence of Jesus as a historical person. And when that day comes, you'll see. So if we do what the evolutionists do and appeal to what undiscovered evidence in the future as a reason to hold our worldview in spite of the lack of evidence, if we were to do that, they'd mock and ridicule us. But when they do it, it's acceptable. It's okay. Their faith is acceptable. You know, a lot of atheists out there, they like to pretend as though they have some kind of superiority whenever it comes to science, and they like to claim it as their own. But the truth is, historically, whenever it came to science, atheists did not respect scientists back in the day. If a scientist did not agree with them, Stalin was not only known for burning down churches and killing priests or forcing religious people to kill people and stuff, or they would die as well, kind of genocide, but he also would kill scientists who wouldn't agree with him or go along with his experiments. So the point is, ladies and gentlemen, is if the scientists don't do what they want, and they are not politically driven or won't go along with the atheist agenda, it's not like atheists didn't have a problem with wiping them out as well. I'll give you an example of something. You read my book, Afterlife mm -hmm. uh, Simulation. Well, I point out in the story, although my story's fiction, some of the stuff I bring up, and it is actually real, like the Humanzy Project. Stalin believed that he could actually create ape-like warriors that were hybrid humans if he got scientists in and did a bunch of genetic splicing, which we hear about nowadays in eugenics and all that. He believed that he could take the abilities from animals and put them into people due to evolution and, you know, his views on socialism. When scientists told him that wasn't possible, he'd kill them until he found the right ones that said they could. So they tried, and a lot of women and a lot of men were tortured under these experiments. And nowadays, guess what scientists are doing? A lot of people also like to look at some of the bits of science as something positive. But why aren't atheists, you know how atheists are always going on about slavery and all this? But why aren't, uh, they, do, why aren't they doing anything about their ancestors that are sitting inside of cages right now being experimented on with HIV and cancer and viruses? Yeah. Yep. Very interesting stuff. We might get a visit from Sneedcat1776, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. But what else do you have to talk about in regards to the relationship between religion and science, Brett? Well, there's always been a great deal of respect all the way up throughout the ages. It started in um, probably towards, I don't know, half into the 19th century where atheists started to make their call and all that. And they've had several times politically and then the scientifically scientific field to be able to do something, but they ended up causing more damage and harm than they, they actually did good. I was telling you earlier that they haven't done anything that's actually revolutionary. They've never invented anything. They've simply worked on the backs of giants. I thought you were telling me before the show, though, that they invented a lot of different kinds of ammunition, though, for guns. Yeah, they did. They did help with creating weaponry and all that because a lot of theistic scientists, a lot of religious scientists, they felt it was against their they knew that it would be used to kill people and they believed in thou shalt not kill. But an atheist doesn't have that hindrance. An atheist will say, well, 
let's see if we can come up with something like that. Now, I'm not saying that there wasn't some religious people back in the day that didn't invent something having to do with weaponry, but non-believers had no problem with it whatsoever. There was nothing stopping them from creating weapons that would absolutely destroy people. So what we're hearing is that when it comes to creating things that are the backbone of civilization and are important to everyone and benefit everyone, you primarily have Christians, Jews, and theists of various kinds who are behind most of it. But the only real thing we can point to for atheists as being the originators of, or at least being uh, pioneers and inventors of, is bullets for guns. Or as Marcus Phoenix would say in Gears of War, bullets, bullets, bullets. Yeah, Christians have always tried to create things that would benefit humanity. They were creators as where the non-believers have always been acknowledged historically, if atheists ever do their research, as the destroyers of worlds. Yep, that is the sad reality. But it makes sense. I mean, they don't have a worldview that says, you know, you need to not murder people and you need to preserve life as best as you can and take care of animals, take care of the earth, you know, take care of your house and your own, you know, that kind of stuff that benefits everyone. Atheists don't have a worldview that teaches that. And so they're free to not do any of that stuff and follow their darker urges because, well, what's to stop them in their worldview? Nothing. Exactly. And that's Especially, one of the reasons that that's one of the reasons why we have a major uh, problem in our modern day. We have what we refer to as political scientists, people who don't have any kind of moral foundation or framework where they will simply if the government says build a weapon or do this or do that or lie on TV and make something up. Bam, they're right there. Yep. Stock, lock and barrel, baby. <laughs> But yeah, then there's all the atheists and evolutionists who are part of the 500 million club, you know, you know, the 8 billion people that are on the planet. That's way too many. So we got to reduce the population of the world down to 500 million people by any means necessary. Those kind of people are going to be all on board with all kinds of death and carnage. Because after all, as the Psalms, I think it is, say, or maybe it's the Proverbs, all those who hate me love death now was god talking oof that's rough and that sounds silly at first until you you know observe the world around you and you realize that there's a lot of people out there who when you talk about the 500 million club and reducing the population down from 8 billion to 500 million which inevitably is going to involve some major genocides to accomplish realistically those people get happy about it they salivate about it. it's like yeah we're gonna do humanity a service by killing 95 percent of them Woo! that's right and one of the major progenitors behind it everybody knows about george soros he is a atheist and then there's bill gates who is big on the population of the earth and we also know that a lot of these well since we're on YouTube, let's just say some of the stuff we've had to deal with for the last couple of years having to do with masks come from a place where it is well known for being a majority atheist. Huh? Weird. What a quinky dink. I, I think this must be a total coincidence. There's no correlation at all there, Brett. Can't be. No, 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 no. <laughs> After all, it's not real atheism. Real atheism hasn't been tried. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 
There you go. Folks, uh, later on after the show is over, if you go to me and TTOR's Twitter, I will put up several quotes from different scientists who have revolutionized the world that are theists. And I'm sure everyone on Twitter who comes across it will benefit from it. Because after all, they're sold a really bad bill these days. They are told all kinds of lies about how science and religion contradict each other. They're against each other. And anyone who's a real scientist is going to reject religion. And of course, all the religious people who are real scientists. Well, you're not a real scientist because you embrace your religion. So you don't count, bro. But that's the way of the authoritarian, that's the authoritarian nature of the atheistic worldview is whatever contradicts their worldview, they just censor and suppress, pretend it doesn't exist, try to stop other people from knowing about it. And so if that they succeed in that, then people who don't know better, especially when they're young, they're going to grow up thinking that whatever the atheist says is true regarding science, religion, and the relationship between the two of them which is why we're doing this stream tonight. It's really important that you realize that you've been lied to about science and religion being at odds with each other. You've been lied to about them opposing each other. You've been lied to about science and religion being so against each other that in order to embrace one, you have to reject the other. Could not be further from the truth. And yet, that's what we're told by people who control the major institutions and the academic world entertainment industry pretty much every industry and every uh into institution that there is out there right now that's what they're telling you and it's all lies i do have a little bit of a concern that i've been worried about about the whole uh, genetic yeah. manufacturing and splicing that has been getting really really big and they've been getting funded I have a feeling that one of these days these scientists are going to end up manipulating some genes of different creatures and then eventually use that to try to claim um, that they were that these are transitional creatures through evolution. But the truth is, is they wouldn't be naturally made. You understand what I'm saying? They were manipulated yeah. by humans. And that is actually something I don't want to talk about in this stream in great detail. I actually have a future video coming up that's going to talk about in more detail. But there's this new idea going around that evolution by natural selection over billions of years is over and has been replaced by evolution via intelligent design. The globalists are literally, because there's so much evidence supporting intelligent design, they are literally taking intelligent design and making it part of evolution. And now they're claiming that evolution by intelligent design is the current form of evolution that exists. And it's being driven primarily by companies like Microsoft with their internet clouds and the rapidly advancing technology that they claim allows them to hack into humans and basically take away our free will. Crazy stuff, I know, but I have a more detailed video about that coming out soon. That I think So for the people out there... We got bubble gum and some others who are saying, oh, no, do it now, do it now. Listen, TTOR will do a really organized, good video about it. And after he does it, most likely we'll end up doing a show and we'll discuss his video and, and some of his thought process on that. <laughs> absolutely. Are... Yeah, absolutely. 
It's actually a topic that my friend Seeking the Truth has been covering a little bit here and there on like his Twitter account. And I finally came across something juicy and went, oh, oh, that's bad. That's really bad and also problematic. But yeah, when you start looking into this new thing that's coming out called Evolution by Intelligent Design and basically how it's taking over uh, evolution by natural selection over deep time in terms of its supremacy and its influence over everything, you'll realize that we are in a brave new world. The evolutionists and atheists of old, they've been debunked. They've been disproven. Their time is over, but they're being replaced by a whole new group of evolutionists who literally try to fuse evolution with intelligent design and say, there's no God behind it all, even though you're literally talking about intelligent design. Don't think about it too hard. <laughs> well, if anybody out there wants to in the comments or over on Twitter after the show is over, because I did point out, and I'm not making an extraordinary claim here, every founder of every field of science was a theist, someone who believed in a higher power. And I'll give you another example. We were just talking about genetics. Gregor Mendel, he is the father of modern genetics, and he believed wholeheartedly in God and actually wrote about God quite a bit in his diary. So if you were to ask me any question on Twitter, say, who is the founder of this or who is the founder of that? I guarantee that I'll be able to easily and quickly be able to associate it with being a theist and voila. And it shouldn't be much of a shocker. All the way up to the 20th century, uh, everybody on the planet, a majority of people were theists. So it is what it is. Yep. yep. And here, Bubblegun points out that the unknown virus of unknown origin, EIO, was just evolution by intelligent design. And if you like the way that I got around that, you're welcome. <laughs> it's all good. It's not as bad as it used to be on YouTube with that stuff. But elections are coming up. They're going to get stuff on us. Yeah. Actually, it was Terrence Pop who came up with that alternative way of talking about it. <laughs> Well, believe it or not, the whole idea of intelligent design with evolution, that's not really, a, it's not a complete new idea, even though they're going to probably throw new ideas into it. This is originally what the first guys like Darwin believed, that evolution simply couldn't work. Because what are they suggesting exactly when you hear it? That these cells in our genetics have a goal that they're basically upgrading them. This information is becoming more complex and somehow still able to function. Well, in order for something like this to happen, this mathematics, rationality, and logic and information to do that, then they're going to suggest there has to be a mind behind it, which is exactly what Darwin did. So it's not going to be too far from the old ideas that we're, you know, done away with. Yeah, the main difference between evolution by intelligent design and the and something like theistic evolution which is basically evolution billions of years and all that is true but god's behind it all the primary difference between the two is who's behind it all the theistic evolutionists say that god is behind evolution in billions of years the atheist the evolution by intelligent design people are saying yeah, intelligent design is true, but eight, uh, evolution's behind it, and mankind is the one who's behind it all. So I really, it's, see, a, it's a I difference can... between God and man as far as who's behind it all and who's the ultimate authority on that. 
I can see the theist working with uh, some forms of microevolution and natural selection, but not macro. Not that doesn't it doesn't even come close to fitting with Genesis or the creationist story. So some religious people are going to, and eventually, I, I suppose they're probably, and you probably already noticed this, where they're going to have to say that Genesis was a metaphor and perhaps it was just a vision that Moses might have, you know, didn't see it all in its entirety. That's the only thing they could argue, but it just simply does not fit, you know. And the problem with microevolution is that it's a very deceptive term because the term itself is essentially describing adaptation, not any kind of real evolution. I mean, when you see species adapting to environments over time, we all see that. Creationists see that. Christians see that. Atheists see that. It's not controversial at all. But they relabel that adaptation as microevolution and then tell you that, well, microevolution over time leads to macroevolution. Of course, the problem is that that is never, ever ever been observed and in principle it can never be observed because macroevolution according to all evolutionists who've talked about it takes so long to occur that nobody can actually live long enough to see it happen in action which means you can't record it as a historical event and you certainly can't set up an experiment to verify it as a scientific fact through the scientific method so you have to have faith that it's true you have to have faith that the people telling you that it's true are telling you the truth because you can't observe it at all. Yeah, instead of people going in search of some kind of common ancestor or missing link, perhaps you need to think of it like this, especially if you're a theist who's kind of confused by all this mess that's flying at you. Perhaps you need to think of it as in search of a common creator. Uh, it wouldn't. It shouldn't be a surprise to anyone out there to think that if God is creating things, he will most likely use similarities. When he's painting a picture, he's most likely going to use a lot of the same paints in his design. And if you think of it as a simulation, he's going to use a lot of the same scripts and coding. Uh, why use some? Why you know fix something that isn't broken? Right. And then there's the whole field of science called biomimetics where basically what people do when creating new technologies is they base that new technology's literal design on something in nature that has the same design, but it's like way more advanced than what we can make. But we base our design off of it, and it functions in a similar way, though not as well. Like that whole field of biomimetics is also a very good thing to look into if you're looking for a positive relationship between religion and science. Uh, Dr. Thomas Kendall, in particular, has done a couple of presentations on biomimetics that would really shock a lot of people who are not aware of that information. Makes intelligent design really plausible, which is why the evolutionists are now trying to make intelligent design part of evolution. There's a lot of atheists out there who claim that Albert Einstein insulted the concept of God and Jesus Christ. Are you able to see that? Notice, unlike atheist memes where they put Albert Einstein's picture, they never provide any resources of where they found the information, as where I always do. You want me to read that to you? Absolutely. It says, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew but I am enthralled by the luminous figure 
of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. That's Albert Einstein. And that is very much true indeed, Brett. I mean, when you look at the Gospels in particular and you compare them to the historical, the historians in Rome who wrote about Jesus, like I did in that one, well, in the previous episode of the TTOR show, I went through this topic. When you look at what those Roman historians wrote about Jesus and you compare that to what the Gospels say, it's very easy to come to the conclusion that Jesus was a real historical person, which should frighten a lot of people because the things he said and did are the things only God can say and do. You know, that God that atheists and evolutionists are always telling us doesn't exist. It's just a figment of our imagination. Yeah, that's who Jesus claimed to be. And he really existed. And then he proved it, too. You want me to tell you a funny story about Stephen Hawking? Sure. I don't know if you knew this, but Stephen Hawking was married to a woman uh, basically in his early 20s who was a devout Christian all the way up until halfway through his life. Well, they they made a movie called The Theory of Everything where they basically dictated some of the things that happened in his life and some of the things that his wife actually remembers. He was sitting at a table with his wife in his chair, obviously, and he was telling her that he basically came up with an equation that validated that the universe had a beginning, just as Einstein and the priest had predicted. Right. So for some reason, a lot of people think Stephen Hawking came up with that, but he didn't. He was trying to actually see if there, the information was right. And he proved it through redshift and all that radiation stuff. Well, what he said was really fascinating to his, he, he kind of went, ah. Like that, and his wife said, what's wrong? You seem a little misshiveled. What's going on? And he goes, well, honey, it looks like God's back in business. And that's from the movie about him? Yeah, the theory of everything. Yeah, a lot of the reasons why, in case a lot of people ain't figured out, one of the reasons why Stephen Hawking didn't work his way towards the concept of God was he blamed his disability and he blamed a lot of the limitations he had as a scientist because of his physical problems and it angered him towards God. And the theory of everything actually shows that. That's the reason why you don't hear a lot of atheists talking about that movie because it's a very honest film about it's pretty much anger that he had towards God. Yeah, that, that makes sense in light of the things he went through. Yeah, I know that uh, Thomas Kendall also has some presentations on uh, Stephen Hawking that are very illuminating and he talked about some of the same stuff too about his wife and uh, some of the things that he dealt with in terms of his relationship with religion and his struggle with it but yeah he is a fascinating person now that he's passed on he's a fascinating historical person to look at and understand yep well you got any more for us unfortunately I do not but hey we stretched that out to an hour and a half, so I'd say we did pretty well in that regard. Well, I am looking forward to the video that you're talking about making, and I'll probably end up having a lot more to say about it. I'll do some more research on it as well. I've looked into some of this stuff in the past, but i got to kind of give myself a refresher, you know what I mean? And then we'll talk about your video after you All get right. it done. So Bubblegun here said a couple of interesting things. Like, one, he claimed that there is no such thing as microevolution 
And that's a bit problematic because we can easily look that up. In fact, I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to look up microevolution on Google. Microevolution. Then I should probably screen share my search so that way he can see what I'm looking at as I search. So microevolution from the website Understanding Evolution, which is a University of Berkeley website. And it says microevolution is simply a change in gene frequency within a population. Evolution at this scale can be observed over short periods of time. For example, between one generation and the next, the frequency of a gene for brown coloration in a population of beetles increases. Such a change might come about because natural selection favored the gene, as shown below, because the population received new immigrants carrying the gene because of mutation or because of random genetic drift from one generation to the next. So, Bubblegun, when you claim that microevolution is not a real thing, you are either wrong because you don't know or you're lying by omission. And I'm going to bet on the first one. I'm going to assume you don't know. Understanding Evolution is a pro-evolution website by the University of Berkeley. It's an EDU site controlled by a college university. And I believe it's the same people that are behind the National Center of Science Education, which Kent Hovind has made many critiques of in his creation seminars over the years. So these are real evolutionists, real atheists who understand evolution and microevolution is a real thing, according to atheists and evolutionists throughout time. It's, so all, it's just... also something, like you said, it is observable. Unfortunately, uh, Bubblegum, and I don't think you're lying. I, I think you've got your reasons for whatever. But simply by looking at parents and then looking at their children and being able to see the similarities between the children and the parents, that's traits and their genetics right. being passed to the offspring. So that is observable. There's, right. there's no getting around that. And but that's what I pointed macro, out earlier too. Yeah. Macro's the problem. It's when TTOR grows wings and turns into a flying monkey. That's whenever we got our problems, when they're claiming that you actually change species to something else. That's where it's not observable. That takes billions of years of magical time to happen. Right. And that's what I was saying earlier, too, because what was described as microevolution on that website is actually adaptation. We never see that kind of evolution lead to macroevolution. But they call this kind of adaptation microevolution because they want you to believe that that kind of adaptation can lead to macroevolution. You know, one family of animal turning into a completely different family of animal via natural selection over billions of years. They want you to believe that microevolution leads to that. And that's one of the things that that website promotes and teaches. Absolutely not true at all. Can't be done. No one can even verify that scientifically because, like I pointed out earlier, the process of evolution takes way too long for anyone to actually you know, lay out, observe macroevolution happen in action. There's also been a lot of fraud committed in the science mm -hmm. community, like with the figure, the well-known figure, Lucy. Uh, scientists, unfortunately, made the mistake of, they didn't do a very good job of their fraud, and it was easily discovered. 
that they took the very few fragments they had of the supposed transition of uh, basically ape to man, this female uh, creature, they put fake wooden feet on this thing that resembled human and hands on it and all that and gave it a full body structure that was fake. They literally only had a couple fragments of bones and then they decided to make their own model of the way they thought it was. Well, they did the same thing with dinosaurs too. They made them look like they were Jurassic Park when it turns out nowadays they're claiming that the T-Rex didn't look like the cool thing in the Steven Spielberg movie, but was actually a giant chicken. <laughs> exactly. And then, of course, Bubblegun says in that same vein, atheists simply took Christian microevolution and ran with it. And that is also wrong because as the article you saw on screen a minute ago proved it was evolutionists that talked about microevolution as a real thing. And Christians are the one who took it and ran with it when it came to explaining adaptation and explaining how microevolution can never lead to macroevolution. It was evolutionists and atheists who came up with it, and Christians are the one who ran with it as a term. You got it mixed up. Yeah, there. before we, we release out of here, though, I really encourage people. We talked a little bit about the Cambrian period earlier. Mm -hmm. People need to look into that. That totally blows evolution out of the water. Scientists hate dealing with that because the claim is, is that basically life reset itself and there was an explosion of diverse creatures that seemed to have all these advanced abilities in them already right off the bat. Mm -hmm. Well, yep. if you look at the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, it describes that God created a diversity of creatures that already had reproductive ability. They were already programmed and had a system in place, immune systems, all this. So there you go. Bubble Gun said, too, that adaptation is not behavioral, is only behavioral, not genetic. You Christians are suggesting genetic adaptation, not behavioral. Well, on the microevolution page we just saw, it talked about genetic adaptation. I mean, literally, how many times in that little paragraph did I read did we learn about the genetics and the genes that were being passed on from generation to generation as a result of this microevolution that they were talking about? I mean, how can you say that? And to, and it. <laughs> it took me one minute to find that article, by the way. I literally just typed in microevolution, and that article was the first result that came up. So, Yeah, it's, it's not controversial. Our genes get passed on to our offspring, and the, the child will share some uh, genes from the, the woman, the mother, as well as the father. That's... That's not shocking or surprising. Uh, Bubblegum, if you have anything you want to argue about, tomorrow at 7 p.m. Central, I'll be doing, hosting a live thing, and you can come in there and argue with me if you want to. I am not. I don't know if TTOR will be able to find the time because he's very busy and has a lot of uh, things. I haven't seen my girlfriend in a week, so I'm going to be spending time with her. A tomorrow. week? My goodness, man. What's up with that? Well, when you're surrounded by two inches of ice all around the outside of your house and it stretches out for miles uh you can't go see people. <laughs> Oof, that's rough. That's yeah. rough. It's pretty rough. It was rough for a couple of days, but it's behind us now. 
All right. Well, yeah. I think that this was a really good show. And like I said, ladies and gentlemen, in case DTR didn't have a plan to put this out there, make sure you uh, follow us on Twitter. That's what we use for our hub to basically put our Rumble videos, YouTube stuff on, everything. You can find everything we do on Twitter, and it'll lead you to all the good stuff. Yep. If you look at the banner on the top of the screen, you see the handle I have on my quarter channel and my Rumble channel, which is one of the sites we're streaming to right now. You also see my handle for my X account, which is Twitter. And you also see my true social and getter handles. But yeah, you should definitely follow me on Twitter and Rumble. You should sub to me on and you should do the same to Brett because we're also restreaming to his Rumble channel and we're streaming out to his Twitter account. So you should definitely follow Brett there and sub to him on Rumble as well. Because Brett needs a lot more subs and views than he's getting on Rumble. He's a great yeah, content Rumble creator. was kind of slow. I'm suffering from entropy on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, Rumble uh, rolled out a new uh, program recently to promote small creators, which I was initially excited about. But then it turned out that the only people who are small creators that are eligible for this program are people who stream for at least two hours a day, five days a week. And I was like, well, can't do that. I barely have time to do this one stream every week. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, can't do that. But, no, Brett does great content, and he's been popular on other sites before other than YouTube. So let's try and make Rumble one of those other places. Let's make Rumble great again. Yeah. Well, I mean, Rumble's a great place to be if you're a big content creator to begin with because then you get thousands of your fans following you over and, they actually get like thousands of live viewers on their streams. So those people are loving Rumble right now. It's those of us who are building from zero. We're having the harder time, but we're doing good. But anyway, yeah. I think that so was I'm a Brett great Keen show on Twitter and Brett Keen on YouTube. Oops, sorry. <laughs> on Rumble. But Brett Keen show is his Rumble handle, and Brett Keen show is also his new Twitter handle. Yay. And with that, I bid you guys adieu, farewell. Even though I won't be at Brett's show tomorrow night, you guys who watch this stream, you should go watch his show and be a part of his show tomorrow night. God bless everyone. Mm -hmm.